If you've ever suffered from a slow Wi-Fi connection while traveling or wasted time trying to log into unprotected Wi-Fi networks, then you know firsthand what a hassle it can be. I learned this the hard way myself many years ago, and that's why I've been using a Solis global Wi-Fi hotspot for the past 10 years. I've been recommending Solis to my relocation clients since it was a different company back in 2011, and it's been a lifesaver for me to stay connected almost anywhere. I've used Solis hotspots to work from an airport in Australia, a car in Montenegro, and my house in Costa Rica when the internet cut out. With a Solis hotspot, you get a private, secure, and portable Wi-Fi connection wherever you go. They have coverage in more than 135 countries without needing to swap out extra SIM cards. All you do is create an account, download the app, and choose your Wi-Fi plan. You can activate a monthly plan or a day pass from within the app. You can choose between monthly plans if you're a frequent traveler or just a simple day pass. In fact, two of my relocation clients are also using a Solis hotspot as they drive an RV down from Pennsylvania to Florida en route to moving to Costa Rica. Solis hotspots are a lifesaver and I always recommend it as a backup internet connection and never travel anywhere without it. You can try Solis using our link in the show notes and never get stuck without internet again. Or go to travelingwithkristen.com slash Wi-Fi to check it out. That's with our link at the top of the show notes or at travelingwithkristen.com slash W-I-F-I. Welcome to Badass Digital Nomads, where we're pushing the boundaries of remote work and travel, all while staying grounded with a little bit of old school philosophy, self-development, and business advice from our guests. Hey there, Kristen from Traveling with Kristen here, and welcome to episode 194 of Badass Digital Nomads. A very happy Valentine's Day to you today. And today my guest is Joyner Guerrero, who is originally from Venezuela, but moved to Colombia a few years ago because of the political situation there. And he's now an English and Spanish teacher living in Colombia, but also while traveling the world. So today in our interview, he talks a lot about tips for learning a foreign language, whether that is Spanish or something else. And also why he thinks that it can be hard for some people learning a language when they move to a new country, but some tips and hacks and inspiration for you to be able to do it yourself. We also do a little bit of an impromptu Spanish slang lesson near the end of this episode, comparing Spanish slang words from Venezuela, Colombia, and Costa Rica. So that was a lot of fun. And make sure to check the show notes out for other resources, a past episode that we had on learning a language. And if you would be interested in potentially getting some remote Spanish lessons from Spanglish 360, the school where Joyner teaches at, and a big shout out to our listener, Dustin, who emailed me asking to have his Spanish teacher on the podcast to share a little bit about his story and living in Colombia. I also found it really interesting to speak with Joyner about his experience with culture shock and adapting, moving from Venezuela to Colombia, and also when he spent three months living in Germany, the difference in going from the culture in Latin America to Europe and Germany specifically. So hope you enjoy. Welcome to Badass Digital Nomads, Joiner. Are you in Colombia at the moment or where are you joining us from? Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Yes, I'm in Colombia right now. I'm living in Cajica, which is in Cundinamarca, really close to Bogota. Oh, okay, okay. And do you have a Spanish school there in person? Or are you doing most of your work remotely? We're doing most of the work remotely. We do teach like in person, but right now we're working like 90% online. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never been to Bogota or that area, but 
definitely have been to Colombia. I've been to Medellin. So we'll talk a little bit about that because I know you have a lot of students there. And actually the reason you're on this podcast is because one of our badass digital nomads listeners named Dustin wrote into us through the website And he said he's currently spending half of the year in Latin America and the other half of the year in the United States. And he just wanted to introduce me to his Spanish teacher because he was having so much fun living in Colombia and living the digital nomad lifestyle there and said that you guys helped him get a study permit to stay in Colombia. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. But, you know, processes in Colombia are not like so difficult. And there are like many people coming here to learn Spanish. And yeah, you have really good listeners because Dustin is a really good student we have for the academy. How is his progress going? No pressure, Dustin, if you're listening to this. (laughs) We're just checking in on your Spanish progress. Shall I be honest? No, I'm kidding. I mean, Dustin is amazing. I met Dustin like two years ago and his progress is tremendous. Sometimes I think that Dustin speaks Spanish better than me. (laughs) (laughs) And he learned from you or he has a different teacher? He has been learning in this academy, Spanglish 360. And he has had classes with Ander, with me and also with other teachers. So, you know, we're like many people and he has been taking lectures with all of us. And why do you think that people struggle so much to learn Spanish? Because I'm sure there's many people like Dustin out there that want to spend part of the year in one country and part of the year in another country. Lots of people really interested in living in Latin America or Spain for that matter and want to learn a language. But as I found when I lived in Latin America, there were a lot of people that had lived there for five years, 10 years, and they still didn't speak the language. So why do you think that some people learn and some people don't? Yeah, exactly. Well, there are so many things to take into consideration here. On the one hand, we have to take into account how difficult a language is, because I think we all agree that Spanish is a really difficult language, but why is it so difficult? The thing is that this language in pronunciation is very easy, but it's not the pronunciation, it's the grammar. We have many verbal tenses, conjugation of the verbs, and also a big problem that we have with Spanish is like we don't have enough trained teachers for Spanish. What do I mean with this? There are many Spanish teachers, and they are really good, by the way, but many of them don't speak like a second language, like English or something. So they're not like able to globally offer language classes for Spanish. So this is like the main difficult problem and also how fast we speak in Latin American countries. And what is your process for teaching a language? Because I saw that on the website, your process is different from other processes of learning a language and that you're focusing on helping people learn the 20% of the verbs or the language vocabulary that can help them express 80% of what they want to say. So how do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. The thing is that we have a really good method. First of all, we have native teachers And all of those teachers also speak English as a second language because I consider that the best person to teach you a language is a person who has been through the same process you're going through right now. We understand how difficult learning a language is. We understand frustration because we have been through that when we were learning English. And we offer personalized classes, which means we focus on the needs of one student because sometimes we have like group classes, but everyone doesn't learn the same way or at the same speed. So when you're offering like personalized classes, we can focus on the progress of one student. We know what that student needs. And of course, we focus on speaking the language because we are native and this is a very good resource for the student. So if we're teaching them only in English sometimes, 
they're not getting this acquisition because they also mm -hmm. need to listen to the language. We speak with our accents. In the beginning, we try to be like neutral because we have many accents for Spanish. But then little by little, we're getting into our native accent, speaking at a normal speed. And basically that we offer like Spanish classes, speaking the language little by little. And also something that makes Spanglish 360 like something really fun is that it is not that I'm coming to the class, I teach you Spanish and that's it. No, we also play, we also do some role plays, we do some simulation. For example, I tell you, you're going to apply for a job. I'm in this company, you're going to apply for this position. So let's do it. And we have a lot of fun while learning a language. Okay, so you teach the classes in Spanish. Most of the classes in Spanish, but in the very beginning, we try to use English like while the student is needing that. But, you know, we have to turn down our cameras to show the student like gestures and everything for them to understand, even if they don't understand a word with the context and the way we're moving or speaking, they're able to understand sometimes. So this is the way they learn by, you know, necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I learned Spanish in Spanish. So my teachers spoke English, I'm sure, but they never spoke English with us. And I felt like that was really frustrating at the beginning, as you said, because when they first told me that, I was thinking, how the heck am I going to learn a language in a language that I don't know? That doesn't make sense. But it really, really does, because that's the way you learn your native language is you don't know any language when you're born. You just learn by watching and listening to other people speak that language and speak it to you. And eventually you pick it up. It's just that we're so young when we learn that we don't remember learning. <laughs> Do you think that there's any limits to when people can learn a language? Because I remember when I was learning, people were saying, oh, you know, the best time to learn a language is when you're seven years old or something like that. And if you don't learn then, then it's way harder to learn. And so I feel like a lot of people have this block where they're like, oh, maybe it's too late for me to learn a language. Maybe I'm too old. What has your experience been with the different types of students you've had and the different ages? Well, I consider there's no limit at all because we have like different stages in our lives. For example, I learned English by myself. I was 17 years old. I found a very good website online. The name of this website is OM Personal English. And I didn't have any teacher. I didn't have somebody who corrects me, but I was able to learn. Then I practiced and practiced. Then when I was 23, I went to Germany and I learned in a total different way. I was listening to your podcast, the one about learning a language with the locals. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you were explaining to us like how you were able to learn Spanish. And the thing is that you were living in a country where Spanish is spoken. You were in Costa Rica, right? Yeah, exactly. So that is acquisition. So I also experienced that with German in seven or eight weeks of intensive learning, only using the language. I realized that that also works and it doesn't matter how old you are because all method works, but the thing is that you have to find the correct method for you. And something about what people think that you have to be seven years old to start learning. I remember a case in which there was like a research in which there was some logic problems that were given to some people at university and these people didn't come up with the answer and then the same problems were given to some kids from primary school and these kids were able to answer all the questions like really easily and then they explained why the thing is that those problems didn't require any thinking at all it was something like to get upside down like a picture or something and that's all why kids were able to do it? Because kids, they don't think much of a solution. They just see everything in the simple way. And this is also for a language. This is how I consider that only being with locals or only getting exposure as kids is not the only method. We also need explanations and reasons why things are like that, because we are no longer kids. Even though that could work for you, 
it is not the only method because we're no longer kids and we need explanations and reasons for everything. That's true. As adults, we have all of these other life experiences and expectations and filters. And at least we're old enough to ask those questions. You know, I didn't know which questions to ask when I was a little kid. I didn't know what grammar was, but I do think that it can be a benefit learning a language later in life because the brain is elastic. It never loses the capacity for learning. And well, I guess there's exceptions if you had a brain injury, but even then I've read so many stories about people with traumatic brain injuries that were able to bounce back and the brain was able to create new neural pathways and learn in a different way that defied logic and that surprised doctors. So I think it's one of those things where like, if you don't use it, you lose it. But just because you're getting older, it doesn't mean you can't learn new things and learn new skills. Having the ability to break down the verbs and the conjugations being that I was in university when I learned, which would have been a lot different from being a seven-year-old, of course. Yeah, you were seven years old and learning the languages. You know, I always use a phrase. I identify myself with this phrase. It is from China. I don't really know who said that, but I love it. It says, learning is a treasure that will follow its owner everywhere. And mm -hmm. oh my God, this is the best because I have 60-year-old students and they're doing their best. And I say, oh my God, how they can do it. I mean, it is surprising how fast they can learn at a certain age. Of course, being honest, it is not the same when you're young. When you're a little bit older, you don't have the same capacity, but it doesn't mean you cannot, you can, and there's no age for learning. Yeah, actually, you just reminded me of when I was in high school, I was teaching surf lessons and I had a woman who was in her 80s and I taught her how to stand up on a surfboard. And I was thinking like, man, when surfing was invented, you know, I don't know if she was probably already born at that time. So yeah, you can really do anything if you put your mind to it. And even my grandma, she didn't start working out or going to the gym until she was 82 or 83. Like she had never gone to the gym in her whole life. And she built up this incredible strength and stamina by going to spin classes with like 25 year olds. <laughs> so yeah, it could be physical, it could be mental. And so do you think that it's a self-imposed mental block that some mm -hmm. people have when they move to another country or when they go to study a language where they kind of subconsciously think that they can't do it. And that's why they're there for eight years without learning the language. Or do you think it's because they just don't try, like don't go to classes? What do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, when you're determined, you can do anything. But of course, failure is always a possibility. I've known many people trying their best. They started like even more hours than I did like in the past. And still they struggle to learn the language. And I wouldn't say this is always like a mental like wall they like impose on themselves. Sometimes, yeah, they don't find like the correct method for themselves because you know that there is a theory of different type of learning. Mm -hmm. Some people learn by listening, other people learn by writing or just speaking. And maybe these people have been trying with the incorrect method, which, for example, it doesn't mean that if this method works for 100 people, it's also going to work for you. No, each person is different. And in Spanish, we say each mind is a world, a different world. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so maybe they try a lot, but they don't try to first find the best way, the way that best fits with them. Yeah. I think it is a lot of trial and error though, and very small improvements. Like maybe they don't feel like they're learning, but when they look back over a year, they've learned 50 new words or something and that can build up and they can get momentum that way. Like, I think I was really lucky that I got assigned and placed into a Spanish school that focused on 
this way of learning in Spanish and also centered around verbs that really worked for me and my brain. But maybe if I wouldn't have gone to that school or if I wouldn't have gone to classes at all, and I just tried to get a Costa Rican boyfriend and like learn from him, (laughs) maybe I wouldn't have learned as well. But maybe someone in a different situation who doesn't like school, like I'm a big nerd and a book nerd, maybe they would hate a school that I went to. And they would just want to get a Costa Rican girlfriend and learn from her and like learn more conversationally. Yeah. So I think it just depends on the person. And maybe the key is just to not give up. Even if you feel like you're not making progress and you feel like you're not learning, you're still building that foundation, which is such a frustrating life lesson sometimes because that part can feel like so long. Like I was talking to a friend, Ayo Awasika. We have a, a podcast with him about how to make money writing on Medium. And we were talking about how the first eight or nine years out of 10 years is the hardest part. And then that last year of the 10 years that you're working on something is when you get those exponential returns. And in the case of the building that's been going up next door to my house, they spent the first year or year and a half just building the foundation. I never saw anything happening. Like it was just underground. All of the work was going underground. And then all of a sudden, in a matter of three months, they built like 10 stories high. So for 15 months, nothing. And then all of a sudden the building goes up. And so I think that's kind of the physical manifestation of what learning feels like to me. Sometimes it feels like you don't make progress for like five or 10 years. And then all of a sudden there it is. Yeah. And I know some people who have been trying for six years and they're still motivated and they feel, oh my God, these people are like a good paradigm to follow a good example. And do you remember that at the beginning, I told you that it is good to have a teacher who went through the same process you're Mm -hmm. going right now. The thing is that sometimes teachers are not honest. What do I mean with that? Is that students, sometimes they're getting progress because they are, but they feel they are not getting any progress at all. We need to make them understand this is normal. This is normal. It happened to me. It happened to all the teachers, even a person with a native level for three or five languages. That person went through the same process. That person felt frustrated at a certain point. So Mm -hmm. if they understand that's normal, they won't feel it's me. Oh, no, that is normal. Just going through the process. Right. And everyone experiences that. You mentioned that you went to Germany and I see your picture here on Zoom. And is it the Basilica? I can't remember. I have a photo in front of the same. Yeah, this is the Berliner Dom. (laughs) I'm just exaggerating the R. (laughs) (laughs) So what brought you to Germany and did you learn English there or German and English? I already spoke English at that moment. I went to Germany because I had been working in Colombia for a long time, like three years. And I was kind of, oh, my God, I want to travel. This is something you will never forget. And I had the opportunity to go to Germany. I have some friends there and they said, hey, Joyner, I know you're working right now, but we can give you an opportunity to come here, learn German. We will help you with the expenses. And I also spoke with Andrew, which is my boss. He said that this is going to be a good opportunity since we're not teaching German at the academy. I will help you with everything you need. Not everything, of course, but he supported me like with some expensive. And he said, yeah, I'm going to go there. I'm going to learn the language. And once in Germany, I was surprised because it's totally different. Mm-hmm. Latin American countries are beautiful, but culture there is like so different it was kind of oh my god this is beautiful traveling is the best experience that was my first trip to europe i started learning like two weeks after i arrived in germany and i had a german teacher they were only speaking german and it was kind of yeah it is good because i'm a teacher and i understand how this works they used english for clarifications 
And then I was learning really fast. I was able to speak, to have a normal conversation after five weeks. And I learned many things that I'm able to apply for the academy as well in my teaching because you learn something new every day. Mm-hmm. After that trip, I feel that my life is a little bit more interesting, <laughs> <laughs> even before the trip. I also went to Latvia. Do you know Latvia? Yeah, I haven't been there, but I was close by in Lithuania. Yeah, it is very close. And they have a local language, which is Latvian, mm-hmm. but people don't like to speak Latvian. They speak Russian. And I was surprised, but it's normal in Europe. And this is something that I would like Latin American countries to be like that, is that everyone in Europe speaks English. And that's common. You go to the hairdresser and he speaks English and that's normal. That's common. And you say, oh, my God, this is the system that we should have in Latin American countries. To teach people English. Exactly. Yeah. I know I wanted to ask you about that because you're doing some amazing work traveling to different countries throughout Latin America and even teaching kids for free. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but I'm interested also in your experience in Germany. How long were you there for? I was in Germany for three months because I have the Schengen visa for Latin American people. And, you know, I stayed there for three months. And you were based in Berlin? based in Berlin and I visited Hamburg as well. Did you stay in a homestay or did you rent an apartment? It was staying in a friend's house. Okay. And did you feel at all any kind of culture shock? Like that was your first time going to Europe, right? Yeah, it was kind of shocking and like kind of different. In Latin American countries, you go to the street, you know, you go out for a moment And when you're back, you already have like 10 new friends. (laughs) But (laughs) in Germany, you go out and when you're back, the same. I mean, people are like a little bit close because they prefer privacy. And the only friends that you get like really soon are the friends in the academy because those are people from other countries as well. But German people are private and it's not easy to go and meet somebody and yeah you're my friend now this is like something that i noticed the most yeah there's a big difference between the cultures and latin american countries and european but i think especially germany although berlin is seen as being the more open and liberal city but i still feel like People are a bit private. Well, once you get to know them, they're really nice. It's just having the circumstances and the opportunities to get to meet them. Exactly. Yeah. Did you end up speaking German with your friends there or did you guys default back to English? When I was with my friends, I tried my best to speak only German. There was a moment in which I had to speak English to communicate. But after six weeks, I was trying to have all my conversations in German. Mm -hmm. I almost reached like a B1 level in those seven weeks. And then I, I was back in Colombia and, you know, I've been like out of learning for four or five months. But I consider that I haven't forgotten like many things, but still I need to continue learning. Did you find that when you went places and spoke in German, did people speak back to you in German or did they try to speak to you in English? Oh, they try their best to keep talking in German. Okay. Everyone speaks English, but they know you're trying to learn the language. So (laughs) they're like patient with you. Yeah, I felt like everyone, I tried to speak German, like ordering stuff at restaurants and everything, and everyone ignored me. (laughs) They just automatically (laughs) spoke in English, but it might be because they could tell maybe that I was definitely not German. I could look German a little bit actually, but maybe they could tell that I was American. And maybe if you're from a different country, then maybe it's a little bit different. I don't know. Where are you from originally? Are you from Colombia or Venezuela? I'm from Venezuela. I'm from a small town, like 2,000 people there. (laughs) (laughs) And I was going to tell you that in Berlin, it's very common that 
you find American people and something, and maybe why they don't reply to you like back in, in German, is that many, many people in Germany don't try to learn German because you can communicate without any problem in English. Mm -hmm. And young mm -hmm. people are using like more English than German right now. You think so? Like talking to each other? Yeah, because they went to like kind of a show for some films and they only spoke English, no German at all. And they assumed that everyone spoke English in that like scenario and everything. Ah, oh, interesting. I haven't been there in a long time, but maybe I'll go back next year. And how did you find Hamburg? Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the best experience I had was the first time I saw like snow. Oh, wow. I was very happy and that was in Hamburg, but it was touching the snow and everyone like acting normal. And I was kind of a, a little kid with like candy, <laughs> like really happy. And Hamburg is like really beautiful. You can also pay for a trip in a boat in the lake. And that's really beautiful. I mean, that's a tremendous experience. And something you said about getting the answers back in your language. That happened yeah. to me in France. I went to Paris and I realized that people in Paris don't like to speak English. Everyone does, but they don't speak English. Mm -hmm. So did they reply to you in Spanish? I was kind French? of like, hey, I'm sorry, I'm looking for the tower. And do you speak English? And they like, no, no, no. After 10 people, I asked, Only one person helped me and I was kind of, oh my God, why those people don't speak, you know, English? I know they do, but they don't like it. I don't know why. Maybe they love their language so much. They don't try to do it. I had to speak a little bit of French and, you know, my French is not good. I was kind of, eh, pardon? Est-ce que vous parlez l'anglais? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my French is not good either. <laughs> so you went there from Germany. Did you take the train? No, that was a matter of luck. I lost my flight because of the strong wind. And I was stuck in Paris for one day and they said, we're going to cover all your expenses. I escaped from the hotel and I went to the tower. Only one day, only oh, one night. Oh, the Eiffel Tower. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, Paris is really, really beautiful, but... I found that flying around that area, like, because there's so many high-speed trains in France, it can be just so much faster to take the train than to fly. Although it depends how far you're going. Because sometimes, you know, to go to south of France or let's say to Cannes or Marseille or something, it can be quite long distances. So were you in Paris by yourself then? Yeah, I was with... a. Not a friend. It was a woman I met at the airport. She didn't know how to speak English and she was lost. So I was kind of her tourist guide. She was from Colombia as well. And she had the same problem as me. But I was asking the questions I had to ask. But she was kind of, I'm lost. I don't have anyone. I don't know what to do. And I said, sorry, do you need any help? And she said, yes, please help me. And I was like her translator. We stayed at the same hotel. Then I was telling her, let's go to the tower. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And we went together. So do you think she was kind of nervous to go out and explore without you? Without me, she wouldn't be out because, you know, she didn't know how to communicate in a different language. And she was kind of concerned about losing the flight. But yeah, we both made it and she was really thankful with me. She said, I really appreciate it. And she even paid for my taxi in Colombia when we arrived in Colombia. So you left Colombia and came back at the same time. Exactly. Okay. And was this part of a program of some kind or just a coincidence? A coincidence. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you have been really comfortable traveling while coming from such a small village in Venezuela. Did you always have the desire to travel or where did you get this courage and idea of exploration? 
always, I will say always since it was in Venezuela, it was like in a small town, only two or 3,000 people. And I was always applying for universities in the United States, you know, when I was like only 13 and universities there, like college is really expensive. Then I was like one day thinking and I said, hey, mom, I would like to travel around the world. And she said, why? Don't do it because, you know, I'm the pampered one. I'm the little boy in the... Oh, you're the youngest sibling? Yeah, I am. (laughs) And they thought I was going to be with them forever. But my first trip was actually when it was 19. You know, situation in Venezuela went like worse every time. And I came here to Colombia. My grandmother is Colombian. And I got my nationality. So right now I'm Venezuelan and Colombian too. Okay. And what are your plans for the future? Where else do you want to travel to? Many countries. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, I'm saving some money. I'm working in a call center and I'm also teaching. So I have two jobs and I'm saving money because before I travel to Europe again, I want to get to know at least nine capitals in South American countries because it is a really good trip. You travel for four months. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you travel by air, that's going to be more expensive. But if you travel by bus, you spend like around 2000 maybe a little bit more $2,000. And you will travel for four months, staying two weeks in each capital, like Lima, eh, Quito, then eh, Santiago de Chile. And I know that in Brazil, the capital is Brasilia, but I prefer to go to Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And is this through a company or just taking the bus and booking your own hotel? Exactly. Doing that because situation in Venezuela, situation is difficult. Many people from my town and near places, they're in all those countries. So I have a place to stay. Oh, okay. And you know them from when you lived there or are there forums and places where you can connect with other Venezuelans? No, people that I already know, you know, from my town and close to the one I was living in. And those are friends since when I was like 10 or nine years old. Oh, okay. And which bus company do you use? Because I took the bus all around Peru, but I've never taken the bus between different countries in South America. For that, I was checking about the prices. And here in Colombia, there is one which is Copetran and Libertadores. But, you know, I'm so spontaneous and <laughs> I always make my choices when I'm about to do the trips or something to take the trips. Okay, so you'll have to ask Ander for a, a sabbatical there to take four months off and travel. But could you still teach language classes while you're traveling? Yeah, he always tells me that. Under my boss tells me like, hey, a remote job is the best because even if you want to travel, you will be able to teach to make money, to relax, to get to know the most beautiful places in the world. And he always like tries to encourage me to travel and teach from different countries because it's good to show students you're succeeding in life and they feel motivated doing that. And you get to learn different types of Spanish slang, I suppose, and different accents. Exactly. You know, (laughs) slang in Spanish is so hard because we have so many accents. I really like the Spanish accent in Colombia, but it's quite different from Venezuelan. How long have you lived in Colombia now? And do you feel like your accent has changed? I've lived for around five years, not consecutive, but Mm -hmm. five years. and. I don't know. My accent has not changed so much. I feel that I'm speaking like a little bit slower (laughs) than before (laughs) because I speak very fast. I don't know why, but people in my town speak really fast. But I have been like working on that. And now I speak a little bit slowly, not slowly, but not as fast as I used to speak before. I know some friends and their accent is like influenced a lot. It's influenced a lot. But my accent, I think it will never change. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I've noticed some people where their accents change a lot. And even my accent, I don't know how it is now, but 
when I had lived in Costa Rica (laughs) thank you for so long, I came back to the United States. People would ask where I was from because I think my accent just sounded different. They couldn't tell where I was from within the U.S. And when I was in high school, everyone thought I was from California, maybe because I was a surfer and had more of that vibe. But after being a digital nomad, people couldn't tell at all because it would be maybe part Spanish accent. I don't know. (laughs) It's weird. So I live in Miami right now and there are a lot of Venezuelans here. Of course, many people had to leave because of the political situation there. And a word that I always find funny is that, well, first of all, yes, Venezuelans, I do notice that some of them speak really fast here, not as fast as the Cubans, but definitely a little faster than Colombians. But there's so much Venezuelan slang. And there's one word that I've learned that kind of just seems to mean anything, which is vaina, <laughs> right? Like, how would you define vaina? And is there a vaina in Colombian? The most difficult class for Spanish is to define those words <laughs> because it is something that is from you. It is from your accent, from your language. Vaina is like a thing. Yeah, it means anything, Like right? something, exactly, anything. So esa vaina, that thing. Mira la vaina. <laughs> oh, look at that thing. <laughs> and vaina can also be like situation. Esa vaina está difícil. That situation yeah. is difficult. Yeah. And in Costa Rica, it's vara. So I learned Spanish using vara, like esa vara está difícil. Like that thing is difficult, as you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> or que la vara is like, what's up? What stuff is up? <laughs> and so in Colombia, I was wondering if there is a similar word because I noticed that both of the words vara and vaina start with V. And that you will find a lot throughout languages, like similar words will have like a similar structure or similar letters that mean similar things, even if it's in different countries. So have you found an equivalent of vaina, a Colombian vaina or a Costa Rican vara? Well, it depends because in the cost, they say la cosa, la cosa. The thing. Yeah, the thing. And I don't find like a specific word for vaina, but they do have their own words like parse. Parse is like, hey, brother, like, hey, parse, hey, brother. Something like that, which in Venezuela is like pana. Okay. Pana pana comes from Mm -hmm. partner, the word partner, but pronounced like in British English, parna. (laughs) Ah, okay. They say in Costa Rica that, or in Mexico, I think they say this too, that the word gringo comes from gringo, green go. But I don't know because green is verde. So how did that come about? <laughs> green go there. No, I'm kidding. The, the thing is that gringo for us is a person from, well, that has been like standardized, like a person from the United States. He's the gringo. He's the American. But also the thing is that gringo is the person who speaks a different language. So you don't understand that person because he's gringo. Ah, see, just a foreigner. Exactly. So interesting. And then in Colombia, have you felt any sort of adjustment coming from Venezuela? Was there a difference in the climate, I guess, depending on where your village, your hometown was located versus Bogota. From what I hear, Bogota can be quite cold. The weather can be cloudy. It's a big city. Did you experience any adjustment phase or culture shock moving there? Well, I have been to many cities in Venezuela and I have experienced stressful cities, small cities, small towns. And something I found in Bogota is that Oh my God, it is overpopulated. There are many people and everything is full. There are many cars. And I never thought I was going to see that situation. I mean, so many cars and you cannot like move with freedom or something like that. And when you're going to take the bus, it is really full that you have to make an effort to get in and fit in that bus. But also is that there are like 9 million people in Bogota and there are like two or three more for Venezuelans. <laughs> oh, wow. 
So most Venezuelans are going to Bogota. Most of them. The thing is that I read a report two years ago, 300 Venezuelan enter to Bogota every day. Most of them stay here and the other part are going to Ecuador, Peru and other countries. But something that I feel like very different between Venezuela and Colombia. I wouldn't say that there's like much of a difference because because we're kind of similar, but about the language, I don't know if you know this information, but in Colombia, people say that Spanish is spoken the best. Yeah, people say that. Yeah, exactly. And why it is not because of the accent, it is because people name things like they are named in a dictionary. So would that be like with less slang? Yeah. Okay. Still, we have a lot of slang because people sometimes don't, <laughs> don't try to, to use the same language as everyone does. But I would say there's more slang like in Medellin. Mm. And I so, prefer Medellin accent. Oh, yeah, it is nice. It's a little different there. And why not live in Medellin? Well, I thought about it, but the thing is that I first came to Bogota and I already have like, we say in Spanish, I have my square here. I have my plaza, <laughs> which <laughs> means that you already know how everything works here and you're doing great. So I prefer to take that change to apply that change to my life, but for traveling, but for a professional life, I prefer to, to stay calm here. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. Well, first, I've never heard that saying, like, I have my plaza, but I like that. I'm going to adopt that uh, <laughs> saying. But I think a lot of people can relate to wanting to choose where they apply their adventurous spirit. It's like you have so much percentage of energy or time that you want to spend adventuring around. But when it comes to work and productivity, personal life, getting things done, you maybe want some more stability there and more familiarity, I guess. Exactly. And now, oh my God, this is a really good conversation and I never get tired when I talk about traveling, but I would like to add something about the academy, mm -hmm. which is social work. I've been doing social work for around Seven years, my father set up a foundation for, to help people with disability. Mm -hmm. And I started to work for this academy and I talked to Andrew and I said, hey, you know, I have some proposals here. We should apply some teaching, you know, for people with disability. They should also have the opportunity to learn a second language. Sometimes they're excluded from so many companies. They don't have the same opportunities but we can change that. For example, if I teach English to somebody with disability, who is going to tell them, no, you cannot apply for this job? Of course, they can do it because they speak the language. I mean, at least for a bilingual job. In talking about this, I took a trip to Venezuela, to my hometown. And I spoke with him, with Andrew, and we agreed in teaching some teenagers for free and I selected like you know out of those two or three thousand people like I mean what I consider the best students at the moment and I had six or seven for free and I had 10 more charging them but at Venezuelan price <laughs> mm -hmm. I was surprised because 10 or 15 people teenagers were able to get in three months a B1 level, that was surprising because I was the only person who spoke the language in my town. Well, right now I'm the only person speaking the language at an advanced level because people there don't have the opportunity to learn a second language. There are no teachers. And also they don't have the money to afford going to the city and pay for a course. So after I did this, that was like seven months ago, actually. Now there are courses everywhere in my town people are wow. really motivated to learn the language and i would say that now there are like 25 people speaking the language oh in a town of just 2000 exactly so what do you think the solution is for helping people learn english on a wide scale in latin america do you think it's something that the government should be responsible for or do you think it's a model 
where it can organically spread if private companies and teachers are doing this type of social work, teaching English to locals, and then inspiring those people to then teach more locals and have kind of a compound effect? Well, I would say that it is like a mixed. It depends on the government and also it depends on us. Why? Because, for example, I made this choice and I taught these people and they were able to learn the language. And basically in my town, there was a solution for this problem of non-speaking English people. But at the same time, many people try to do the same as I did and they don't receive support from the community. They don't get the students' interest. You know, some students you're teaching them, they don't feel like that motivation. They make you feel like they don't want to learn the language. And also, they don't get the resources from the government. For example, it was hard for me to get a place in which I could teach. Even though I was doing that for free, I was receiving knows from some places in the community until I spoke with the principal of one school and she said, yeah, this place is yours because you're doing something for the community. So it is a mix of everything, teachers, community and government. If we work together, we can make it possible. Well, I love that goal that you have to teach English to everyone in Latin America. Do you plan on doing that also in Colombia or in other countries, for example, when you go around for four months? That would be like tremendous experience because I would like to do that. The thing is that, for example, in Colombia, as you said, I have a square. <laughs> in Colombia, I know and I have many students right now. I'm working many hours a day. But the thing is that when I go to other countries, it's not going to be easy to get plenty of students to get them like learning a language. But I totally would like to do that with the academy so we can spread the message. And, you know, if we have a lot of people interested in learning, we can create a program to reach every corner of the world. Yeah, I mean, the challenges are that it can take, as you mentioned, at least one month of consistency for people to be able to express themselves. Like for you, it took five weeks in Germany. For me, it took at least a month and maybe it was four to six weeks in Costa Rica, going to school four days a week and living with a host family and being forced to speak Spanish everywhere. And then the problem with teaching English in a non-English speaking country is that you have that timeline to get started and create that foundation that we were talking about. But then you need to maintain it. And it's hard to do that when other people don't speak English around you. And that's the problem that I've personally felt getting motivated to, let's say, learn French or German, which I've tried to do online a couple of times from other countries. And I felt like it was difficult for me to keep that motivation when there was no one around me that I could speak French with in person in Miami. Like maybe there is if I go to the French restaurants or the French bakeries or something like that. So what do you think would be a workaround for that? Or is it more that people learn to speak English and then hopefully they get inspired to get remote jobs where they're practicing their English or get to travel or study abroad in an English speaking country? Or what do you see as the end goal there for people to be able to maintain those skills? Well, yeah, this is a very good question because not everyone has the opportunity to learn the language in a foreign country where the language is spoken. The thing is here, for example, most of the people who learn English here, they do it because they want to get a better job. And the best way to keep on practicing a language is to get a remote job or not even a remote job, but a bilingual job. Or work in tourism. Exactly. Something like that. For example, here in Bogota, we have in Medellin as well, we have many call centers. And those call centers are everyday hiring people because there are not like enough people in Colombia to afford the necessity of bilingual people to cover those jobs. It is like less expensive to have a call center in Colombia than having it in the United States. So that's why they prefer to hire a call center here in Colombia. 
and they need for each campaign and they need like at least 40 or 50 people and they need to hire all those people and they need a B2 level, which is high intermediate. But I've noticed that because of the lack of bilingual people here, they're hiring even people with B1 level and I've seen companies offering a program. You get paid for reaching B2 if you already have B1. And that's something that I always tell my students. Hey, if you learn English, opportunities will rain to you. (laughs) You will have Mm -hmm. opportunities every day. And some of them are doing it because they want to travel to the United States. As you know, people are going there and crossing like this forest. Do you know the Dariem? Do you know that? Yeah, to cross the border. And yeah, exactly. And so many people are trying to learn the language. But the thing is that it's a little bit more difficult to do it in Colombia than doing it in the United States. Still, we try to give them every tool they need, all the resources. I teach them the language and I also give them like 1,000 resources for them to use out of the class for them to keep like themselves using the language and practicing. Because if you don't have anyone who you can practice with, how are you going to maintain all that information to keep all that information in your mind? Yeah. Internet is the solution. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's a good idea to have the call centers funding English classes for people. So they're actually training their workforce. But those are some other good ideas for people to practice by having remote jobs where they're speaking English or any language that you want to learn. And then we can also link to my other podcast on learning a language where the show notes, we have a lot of different websites where you can practice conversationally with other people. And so I think once you get into that habit, if you fail, then try, try again. Like if it's something that you want to learn, let's say you really want to learn German, but you live in a place that no one speaks German, then you can just have a weekly meeting or even a daily habit where you go onto one of those websites where you can just speak with other native speakers and just make that a part of your daily or your weekly routine. And so that will link back to that other podcast there in the show notes. And then before you go, I was just curious if you've seen any changes in your area with the number of foreigners moving there since the pandemic. So you've been there for five years. So a couple years before the pandemic, during the pandemic, after the pandemic, have you seen an influx in people from other countries that are working remotely? Yeah. For example, when I first applied for a call center here in Colombia, the man like doing the interview was Venezuelan. And they're hiring like many foreign people. I've seen like people from Peru, people from Costa Rica, because we have a call center here in Colombia, but they have a site also in Costa Rica and El Salvador. So they are always like doing some exchanges with these people. But most likely you will see Venezuelan and Colombian working in this industry. But people like Dustin, for example, my podcast listener, Dustin, who introduced us, he's spending half the year in the United States and half the year in Colombia. Have you seen more people like him since the pandemic that are working remotely, but they're just coming to Colombia for fun? Yeah, I've seen many people, but now after the pandemic, I only see them in some places like in Monserrate, which is a place here in Bogota where many foreign come. But before I used to see more people like Dustin, people coming from the States or from other countries, like for tourists. Of course, the pandemic influenced a lot the the situation. And now I would say that we have 60% of people we had before the pandemic. Okay. So it's going down. It's going down, but it's again, going up because right now we don't have the same restrictions. Right. You mentioned that your school is helping people with getting student visas to learn Spanish. Can you talk a little bit for people who aren't aware of the Columbia student visa, how to get it and how long people can stay there versus just the 90 days with their passport? Yeah, I know a little bit about this. 
This is something that my boss is doing for foreign students. He has all the information. He knows how to process all these visas for students. I know that they can stay for more than these 90 days, sometimes six months and Mm -hmm. even more than that. And they have all the opportunities even to work here. But this is a question that would most likely be answered by Andrew. So taking advantage of this, this academy also offers that survey and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, on Google, and you just have to type Spanglish 360 Academy. And when you go to our website, that's a service that will be offered on the website. Okay, great. So for people who are interested, if you want to Google this Columbia student visa, I think it's the M, is it the M visa or the M9 visa, the migrant M visa for the student visa. We'll link to that in the show notes. We'll also, of course, link to Spanglish 360 and to the other podcast episode on learning a language. So thank you so much, Joyner, for coming on the show today and and sharing a bit about your experience as a traveler, as a multilingual person, and uh, giving us your tips for adapting to other languages and cultures. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you online and everybody out there. We'll see you again next week. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the year, trips and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and remember that you can try the Solis International Wi-Fi Hotspot by using our link in the show notes or by going to travelingwithkristin.com slash Wi-Fi and bring your internet with you to more than 135 countries. That's with our link at the top of the show notes or at travelingwithkristin.com slash W-I-F-I. 